Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Dr. Eddie Billy Moria, award-winning engineer and consultant to the petrochemical oil and gas, transport and construction industries. Eddie is a lecturer and author of a colossal 1,000-page book on consciousness, which has been described as a magnum opus in every sense of the word. Eddie, thank you for joining me and welcome. Thank you very much, Jeff. I'm very honored to be speaking with you. And uh, I congratulate you on your enthusiasm about spreading the word to your audience and the public. The word, of course, I mean by that the um, word about the higher realms of being the spiritual realms, in addition, of course, to our physical life. Thank you. Eddie, you come from a physical science background of petrochemicals, Mm -hmm. oil and gas, How did you become interested in the topic of consciousness? Let me tell you, Jeff, I was born in Bombay, born in the East, and educated in the West. So my raw materials are Eastern. I was manufactured in the West. (laughs) So I'm very happy with both sides of the world and both approaches. I'd always realized, Jeff, that science is a way of interpreting the world. It is the map. It's the way we interpret the world. So there is something that lies beyond science. Science is the phenomena, but there are influences, there are laws that physical science doesn't address. So um, science is really an expression, a physical expression of the subtler laws of the universe. And when I started studying astrology deeply, and astrology, of course, is a subject that people like to rubbish without knowing anything about it, I was utterly convinced from experience that this was the case. And when I joined the Theosophical Society, which I'd been a member of for nearly half a century, it was wonderful to see how the subtler non-physical and other dimensions of being were stated and put down in a way that could be very scientifically examined. Now, by scientifically examined, I mean with evidence and with references. I don't mean according to materialistic science. So consciousness, uh, in the widest sense, has been an abiding subject, an abiding love of my life, and there, there's been no better um, uh, expression of that than my love for music. I have a beautiful Steinway grand piano. And again, having played the piano since childhood, it made me realize that consciousness is really primal and its expression in music and art is really something that comes out of it. I know this may be hard to do in such a short time we have together, but what is your definition of consciousness? The first thing I would say, Jeff, is you can't define it. Because whatever you, however you define something, you're defining it in some other terms, which again needs a definition. Let's put it this way. It's an experience. How would you define love? You can immediately experience love, but can you define love? Can you define generosity? You can see how it plays out in our life. But in terms of a metaphor, in metaphysical terms, I would refer to consciousness as the absolute primary stuff 
of our universe. It's the ground of our being. It is energetic substance. So it is intelligent substance. It's not material, but it is the very ground of our being, which then expresses in various phases of itself. What are the phases of itself? Well, using the analogy of uh, ice, steam, and, um, uh, and water, or ice, water, and steam, ice, water, and steam are all H2O. But because we can't see steam, or we can't see superheated steam, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It is a, a rarefied um, phase of the same H2O. So when I say different phase states of itself, I mean um, a condensation, so to speak, or an externalization from the, the highest realms, the spiritual realms, down to the physical realm. So consciousness doesn't express in matter, it expresses as matter in the same way as H2O doesn't express in ice, it expresses as ice or as water. So are you saying then that perhaps our consciousness slows down in frequency or something and becomes solid into what we are as humans? Frequency is a good uh, word to use, uh, a lower rate of vibration, if you like. Another way of looking at it is um, <clears throat> implicate and explicate. David Bohm, the great um, metaphysicist, great uh, collaborator with Krishnamurti and, of course, uh, a great scientist in his own right. He spoke of the implicate order and the explicate order. The implicate is what is folded in. And the explicate is what is unfolded or rolled out. So there is always this movement from the implicate to the explicate and then back again, because um, there's nothing like an absolute beginning and an absolute end. So what is folded in is potential, and then it unfolds and releases its potential. And consciousness expresses through the vehicles that are appropriate to its level of expression. So we have subtle bodies and we have the physical body. Let me ask in this way. Like water, consciousness expressed as a solid as our human bodies and then as a gas mm -hmm. or I guess a complete energetic state would be something that we can't see. What is the liquid state or the intermediate state between the two? The liquid state is the emotional body, very, very loosely called the astral body. Can you expand on that? Yes, certainly. The, um, the, the traditional um, taxonomy or, or a way of looking at the human being is body, soul, and spirit. That soul is a very, very loose term. And soul is really an intermediate between spirit at the upper pole and body at the lower pole. So the, the astral, so-called, refers to those subtle bodies that are the intermediate between the physical and the spiritual. Could you put it in terms like when somebody has a near-death experience and they're on the other side and they see other beings in like a transparent ghostly image. Yes, the near-death experience is a wonderful pointer to the fact that consciousness never gets extinguished, that death is transition, it's not an extinction. <laughs> and in that subtle state, when consciousness is operating in the subtle body, then there is the perception of beings in that subtle realm. 
Do you believe that what people call God is basically a universal consciousness field of all of us there together cumulatively or collectively? Yeah, there are many, about as many definitions of God as there are people. That is very well put, yes. I, I would say whatever people call God in whatever terms they wish to use is a recognition of the ultimate source of our being, which is not out there, or it is out there, but it's also in here. It's transcendent and imminent. And that is why you have the great mystics and uh, poets like uh, Rumi, who say, uh, uh, use words like, I died as a stone and I was reborn as a plant, I died, uh, died as a plant, reborn as an animal. I died as an animal, reborn as a human being. Where was I any lesser off by dying? I'm the greater person by dying because I'm moving into a higher order of evolution. And my ultimate goal is to be united with the beloved. And in Rumi's term, the beloved is God. There is a, a lovely um, saying, if I may just continue on this, by the great um, Schiller, you know, Schiller who Beethoven immortalized in his Ode to Joy. But um, he, he put it this way, that the universe is a thought of deity. And since this thought has overflowed, into actuality, it is the task of all thinking people to try and rediscover the original plan. Now, this overflowing of the divine thought is an act of love. It doesn't mean God is loving. God is love. In the Hindu tradition, the universe was created by delight, for delight. Ananda is the word, bliss. In Dante's uh, divine um, comedy, love moves the sun, uh, the, the, the stars and the planets. So whether we say God or the beloved or love, we're talking of the same thing. But for heaven's sake, we're talking of something completely impersonal, not a you know, stupid idea for a white man with a beard. Even though we're talking of the impersonal, it does not mean we can't have a personal relationship with some aspect of the divine. So one can... Uh, revere the the divine as jhana or wisdom or uh, bhakti devotion or any other form would you say that within us is a piece or a spark of the divine or we are the divine completely expressing ourselves here right the the divine spark in us Atma is the, the word we often hear. It's going a bit far to say we are the divine, but we are aspects of the divine, having had the divine spark rather clouded up in us by our various dense bodies. And the, the ultimate purpose of evolution is to reclaim in full consciousness the divinity which emanated us. In your writings, you refer to consciousness as an element. What yes. do you mean by that? I meant the ground of our being. That's exactly what I said. An, an element in the chemical sense, of course, is what cannot be divided. An element in capital letters is the ultimate, which cannot be divided. Therefore, it is the primary stuff. It's almost yep. like we need a we need a spot on the periodic table of elements, <laughs> but C yes. is already taken for carbon. Yes, so that could be the next step, indeed.
You write that human beings live in three worlds. Yes, definitely. Yeah, go on. Sorry, I'm interrupting. That's okay. Um, and I believe that is physical, soul, and psychic. Is that what we were speaking about earlier, or is it something different? Almost, almost. Physical, soul and psychic, and spiritual. Soul and psychic are generally connected. Uh, definitely. There is a lovely story of the sage Miletus, so, who was discoursing to one of his pupils about the heavens and the stars. And uh, looking upwards all the time, he fell into a ditch and got thoroughly filthy in mud. And he gave out the lesson that contemplate the heavens, but realize your feet are on the ground. So we must inhabit three worlds. And you asked about my background. The engineering and the science world was definitely feet on the ground, because in this world, if you don't have your feet on the ground, you can. You're lost, you know, and I'll come to the symbol of the lotus in that as well. But what informs us is our spiritual nature. So we have to strike that balance between feet on the ground and head in the heavens, and also take cognizance of the intermediate nature, which is beautifully symbolized by the lotus, which has its roots in the mud, doesn't it? Because if it didn't, it would float off. But the petals are floating on the water, but the petals turn to the sun. Now, the water here symbolizes the astral world, the intermediate world, the soul nature in this symbol. So the earth provides the physical stability. The water provides another kind of stability, because if there weren't water, the petals would just keel over. You got a long stalk with roots in the mud. It, it wouldn't float. It would keel over. So there is another kind of stability. So the lotus is about as fine an example of how we should live in three worlds. And depending on our nature, one world would dominate over another. Obviously, if one's a sportsman or a physical type, the, the, the physical nature will dominate. If one's more for the intellectual type, another world would dominate, but always bearing in mind the three worlds. Can you describe for us the mechanism of what happens to us when we die? <laughs> well, let's start with the dying process. Obviously, there is um, a loosening of the physical vehicle. And during that state, many people experience what's known as terminal lucidity. And there is there are major studies now um, going on, a lot of research, um, into why is it that people, during the dying process, become incredibly lucid. And this means people who've had brain damage from strokes or suffering from dementia, why do they suddenly become lucid? Well, with the loosening or the dropping off of the physical vehicle, the inner being, the consciousness, is less um, trammeled. It's, uh, it has to work through much finer material. It doesn't have to work through a degenerate brain. So terminal lucidity is something which is in, uh, attracting increasing attention. Right, but and this is putting in an incredibly uh, artificial stylized way, of course, there are many variations, but no end of people then during that transition phase will see a loved one or they will be seen by a loved one because um, in the transition phase, thought materializes the form. So the, the subtle body after the physical body is the etheric body, so-called. In Sanskrit, the linga sharira, that which molds the physical body. And the etheric vehicle is 
the, the next vehicle, so to speak, in which the inner being lives, inhabits. But that will very soon atrophy and drop off. And then this is important. One inhabits the state known as the Kama Rupa, the psychic vehicle. So having lost the physical vehicle, one inhabits the psychic vehicle. Now, the psychic vehicle is really the vehicle formed by one's thoughts and desires. So just as the physical body lives its life and loses energy, ultimately the psychic vehicle will lose its own energies. And that cycle, the psychic vehicle its existence is entirely dependent on the extent to which it has been energized during physical life. So if one has lived a life of great indul physical indulgence, sexual indulgence, attachment to alcohol and all of that, the psychic vehicle is going to live for a much longer time before its energies are expended. But hopefully if one has lived a good and decent life, that vehicle will ultimately fall away. And then the inner entity will enter the state known as Devachan. Devachan is loosely called heaven in the Christian tradition, but it's not a, a permanent state. It is the state where the individuality enjoys a period of considerable bliss, and it's a time and a place where all aspirations that were not fulfilled will have time to be worked on. So all one's spiritual yearnings, all one's altruistic thoughts, all one's um, aspirations, which were not worked out in physical life, will have a chance to be worked out in thought before the next incarnation. And what draws one into incarnation is desire and desire for the familiar places and people one was in connection with. Do you feel like there's ever an end point to reincarnation? Yes, there is an end point. When one has fulfilled one's human existence, one's, one's human journey, and one then is given the choice of well, nirvana. Nirvana only means the extinguishing of the flame. It doesn't mean you're extinguished. It means the flame of desire, nirvana, the flame. When one has the choice whether one consciously wishes to incarnate to help future humanity, what the Buddhists would call the bodhisattva, or um, continue on a, on a higher evolutionary path. So it's important to think of the human being, again, as a phase state. There is the mineral state, the, 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 the plant state, the animal state, and the human state. It is a phase state of consciousness in its ongoing march towards higher states of itself. I know this is a personal question. But right. are you coming back next time? Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. I said with that Devachan, I'm putting it again very, you know, it's very artificial, put it this way, is a state where all one's yearnings and aspirations, aspirations not for a Rolls Royce and a big house, let's get this absolutely state, one's inner aspirations. I want to play all the Beethoven sonatas. I want to play all the works of Chopin. I've jolly well got to get back. <laughs> and also do a, a lot more work in spirituality and science. You talked about working it out on the other side. And I wonder mm -hmm. if, you know, you could manifest a piano on the other side and play all those pieces. No, you're not manifesting the piano. You're manifesting the faculties that are connected with well, it doesn't have to be a piano, it can be a violin or anything else. Let us ask oneself, how is it that Mozart composed the harpsichord concerto at the age of four, that his father, Leopold, said, well, you know, even that's difficult. 
where does that come from? People do not ask deep questions. How is it that Newton, completely born to illiterate parents, could have uh, brought down, and it is a bringing down, his phenomenal works in science and theology and alchemy? How is it that Ramanujan, the great mathematician who never received any mathematical education, um, got to Trinity College, Cambridge, and a fellow of the Royal Society. Where does that come from? People don't ask deep questions, and to say it's just your neurons is, well, your neurons are involved, but you might as well say the Rolls Royce you're driving assembled itself yeah. and designed itself. So do you think that they are connecting to the universal consciousness and then bringing it back with them? Yes, they are. They're connecting to an aspect of the universal consciousness. Look at it another way, but not only they, the great sages, the great prophets of any age, they dip their pens into the same inkwell of universal consciousness, but they wrote down in the handwriting pertaining to the age they lived in. So the ink is one, the handwriting is different. So Zarathustra, Jesus, Buddha, you know, Ramana Maharshi, I, I would say they all dip their pens into the same inkwell of universal consciousness, but they expressed it in a manner pertaining to the age they lived in. In doing my research of you, I noted that you're Zoroastrian, or at least you were raised that way. And you're yes, from right. you're from India, and you appear to know a lot about the Hindu religion. Do you bring anything from Zoroastrianism into your philosophies or your ideas? Well, yes. In volume two, which you can just about see behind you, I've shown the connection between all the great religions. Most certainly, uh, I've shown the connection not only between the Hindu and the Zoroastrian, also the 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 Theosophical and and um, and the the Christian, of course. So um, there is no conflict in the uh, between the Zoroastrian and the Hindu and the Buddhist in the esoteric sense. Conflicts only arise when one tries to conceptualize and codify. Can you describe the latent powers in human beings that you write about? Yes, definitely. Regard the latent powers as a bud, and it is in the nature of bud to want to produce petals. A bud wants to be a flower. So the latent powers are like a bud. Those latent powers are concerning one's um, mental nature and one's feeling nature. The, the mind that wants first to work through intellect, then work through intuition. The physical senses that then will flower into clairaudience and clairvoyance. So the latent power of the eyes is clairvoyance, of course. But the 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 ultimate latent power or not ultimate but much higher is the ability that many adepts seem to possess of being able to be in two places at the same time which i've described not how to do it but what happens in um, in volume 2 and it's known as projecting the mayavi rupa mayavi means illusion rupa means form it is to do with projecting the the body, the illusory body. So it is a power possessed by highly advanced people of projecting their thought in to a location. Would you say? Would you say that's the same thing as an out of body experience? It is. Yes, it is. But it's done in full consciousness. And I'm glad you described that. And an out-of-body experience is um, not 
projecting yourself so that someone else can see me in a different place, but it's traveling in an outer body state, in a subtle body, to another place. And I've described the process that was used by Professor Arthur Ellison, who was three times president of the famous Society of Psychical Research in, in England. And he was also a visiting professor at MIT and a professor of electrical engineering at City University. And I emphasize this because coming from a scientist, it carries weight. And I attended a one-week course of his on paranormal phenomena, let's put it that way. And he described how he undertook the training by the American, I think, Sylvan Mandoon and Carrington. And there is a training process, not without its dangers, and he described how one day to test whether he could do it properly, he decided to visit his local chemist in an out-of-body state, of course, and he noted the labels on the bottles in the shop window. And the next day he went there and verified that what he had seen out-of-body were actually there. So it is a training that can be undertaken. Not without its dangers, of course. Remote viewing is connected with the outer body. These are all very subtle um, states, not the same thing, but they are related. Would you say then that doing that is basically trying to project your consciousness or focus your consciousness somewhere else instead of being here in this body? It is. Uh, yes, I would say it is. But you've got to leave some of that behind for the body, otherwise you'll lose it. What are the dangers that you mentioned? Oh, the dangers are very well. Delusion is one of them. Um, being thoroughly confused, losing touch with reality, not having a feet on the ground. Uh, the greatest danger is glamour. You know, um, imagining things and seeing things that you believe to be real, but are really the image-making production of your own mind. Do you think that doing that can push you in the direction of schizophrenia? If you are of a highly nervous disposition, if one is neurotic by disposition, most certainly. It's not something to tamper with. But this trained projection that we're talking about is another manifestation of the latent powers. While we're on the subject of danger, I think that you also write about the danger of using psychedelics. Yes, I've written rather heavily about that. I cannot emphasize this too strongly. I'm not at all against psychedelics for medical reasons. Psychedelics have been used to great effect to great beneficial effect when people are in deep depression under supervised medical conditions. But otherwise, the use of psychedelics to try and access higher states is extremely dangerous. For a start, it's cheating. It's trying to access a state you haven't deserved. If I burst into a bank, well, you don't do that anymore. It's cyber attacks. But in the old days... <laughs> If you burst into a bank and rob a few million, you haven't earned the million. It's not yours. And you will pay the price in jail. If you take a helicopter to the top of Mount Everest, you haven't climbed it. Come on. You're cheating. But um, besides the, the, uh, those implications, the, the dangers of psychedelics are very definitely concerned with the pineal gland and the pituitary gland. So um, the, the inner deterioration will be inevitable because of the greater disconnection between one's inner being and the artificial state that you try to induce. The other danger is you invite um, entities from other realms into your auric field, and you may not be able to cope with that invasion. 
And I find it incredible that people are talking of psychedelics. Um, Imperial College are researching on psychedelics. Psychedelics will um, uh, enable you to access different states. But that does not mean that you have progressed spiritually in any way at all. Can you expand more on what using psychedelics does to your pineal gland? Well, the the pineal gland um, and the pituitary are related. It's very much the organ of, of intuition. And what it does is it disorganizes, so to speak, the field uh, and the, the auric field around the pineal gland. And the pineal gland is insufficiently um, noted in science, uh, other than uh, its uh, relation with uh, producing melatonin for our sleep cycles. But don't you also write that the pineal gland is a transducer? It is a transducer. And in I... fact, the whole brain, the brain is a transducer. And what you mean by that, that is the connection of it our is. consciousness to our physical body? It is the, the connecting mean. It's one of the connections, yes. So to disorganize that connection is putting is uh, being in danger of disconnecting oneself from one's uh, true nature. So when you talk about schizophrenia, uh, tendencies that would could be one of the results of that. I had a guest once that she was having an out-of-body experience, and during her experience, she saw a homeless man on the street that people considered to be schizophrenic. Mm. Anyways, the next day, when she was out on the street, the, the schizophrenic recognized her from her out-of-body experience. Yeah. Mm. Can you comment on that? Only to say it wouldn't surprise me, because it, the, the, the skits, yeah, I mean, it sounds as though I'm casting dispersions on people, but the schizophrenic person is a highly sensitive person in general. It's just unfortunate that that sensitivity hasn't been contained. So um, in that state of sensitivity, uh, an out of body phenomenon it could be could be seen and and visioned you write that man is a miniature version of the cosmos of the yes definitely what do you mean by that that which made the cosmos made you start with anything you make on earth say say you want to design an aeroplane. No, let's talk about the Channel Tunnel, even though you don't have a Channel Tunnel in America, it's well known. I worked on the Channel Tunnel for many, many years. Now, how does it start? It starts in thought. And then the thought doesn't just create the tunnel. The thought has to be translated in terms of a plan, an archetype, if you like. And then that, according to the plan, we then have the tools and the techniques to actually do the digging. So there is thought, there is planning, and then there is activity. In the Kabbalah, uh, we have Ein, Ein Sof, and Ein Sof Ur, deity in repose, deity awakening, and the boundless light. So everything starts with thought. The forces in the universe started in the same way. We were built in the same way according to the hermetic axiom. I don't mean we started as a result of a Big Bang, <laughs> which is only a, a physical model. But insofar as the universe is the expression of divine thought, we are part of that divine thought. When a man exclaims, I am God, or I am the truth, what does he mean? It comes from two very different levels. Some of the most hideous monsters that have defaced our earth have said, I am the truth, I am God. 
that is a pure expression of the lower self, the ego, wanting to trample on everyone else. Equally, or equivalently, when people like, or great uh, um, people like um, Giordano Bruno, who was tortured and burned for saying that, when they say it, it means that the divine, I have realized that my nature is of divinity, therefore I am God. So instead of being a boastful expression of the ego, it is a truthful expression of the divine nature. So this is where words get in the way. The same three words, I am God, can be so misunderstood. Quite often on this podcast, we talk about the Akashic records, and the terms Akasha and astral light are familiar to students of the esoteric philosophy. Yeah. Can you comment on those terms? The astral light is the the lower levels of Akasha, the lower lining, so to speak, of the Akasha. And one of the finest books on the Akasha uh, is by the great scientist Irvin Laszlo. I don't know if you can see this. Uh, it's not coming through. It's it's like getting caught in the green screen. Maybe if you move it down. Nope. No, That's anyway, okay. What is the title? Yeah. It's it's just called Science and the Akashic Field. Let's go back first. How do you define Akasha? Well, Akasha is is the womb, so to speak. It's the womb from which everything we perceive with our senses has emanated and into which everything will ultimately redescend. So the Akashic Chronicle, as it's called, is the enduring record of all that happens and all that will ever happen. And great sages who are able to read the enduring Akashic records have this ability to access the indelible memory of nature. So Akasha can be seen, again, when we talk of elements, as one of the highest elements which is the womb, so to speak, from which all the other elements have been created. And the astral light is the lower levels or the lower lining of Akasha. So Akasha doesn't mean the sky? No, no, no. It's, well, it can mean. It, it, it means only the sky in terms of um, something that's surrounding us. But it does not literally mean the sky. No, not at all. Mm. All right. But insofar as sky means space, if sky brings the quality of space and space immediately evokes the quality of mind, capital M, then Akasha can be called sky, but sky in capital letters. You place great emphasis on the difference between relative truth and real and truth. What yes. are the differences? The best example comes from Einstein, actually, and I wish people uh, and scientists would take more note of this. He, he says that when something puts on the appearance of truth, we may say it is relatively true, but in order to find the real truth, it is only known to the universal observer. Right, uh, let me try and um, e explain this. I mean, here is a paperweight here. Imagine that is a charged metallic sphere static on Earth. A, a static electrical field will surround it, but there's no magnetic field. You only get a magnetic field when you move it. Hence, you have the electromagnetic principle. So it's static on Earth, but an astronaut from another planet, if he looks down on this metallic sphere with his probe, it's not static, it's moving to him. So does this have an electromagnetic field or doesn't it? And Einstein says, you can't answer the question 
because the question can only be answered by the universal observer. Who is the universal observer? God, so to speak. So the relative truth is what appears to be true and is true in the field of context that you are examining. The absolute truth is that which is only known to the universal observer. Do we have access to those universal truths? And if so, do you expand on those in your books? Well, the only access we have is by raising oneself through the intellectual mind. The intellect and the thought process can only conceptualize. It's only by transcending thought, not negating thought, that we can access those universal truths, or rather approach them. So it is very important not to be limited by the intellectual mind, to use the intellect, but not to be limited by it. And um, Einstein, in his address in 1943 to a Jewish seminary, he starts by saying that our age is very proud of man's intellectual achievements, but we should be very careful not to make intellect the master. It, is, it has no personality. It has muscles, the intellect, but it has no personality. And the intellectual priests are responsible for the fatal blindness we have around us. A much more recent um, saying on that comes from Ian McGilchrist, the divided brain and the nature of thought, uh, the master and his emissary. The intellect is the emissary. We need the servant, but the master is the intuition and the universal perception. So one attains to that higher universal perspective by keeping the servant as a servant and transcending intellect. Quite often, a near-death experiencer will comment that when they cross over, they enter something that we call the black void. Mm. Have you heard of that? And what is your opinion of what that is? Well, they enter, enter the tunnel, the, the, the experience of the black void or the tunnel. Before they are given the choice, do you want to move on or re-enter your body? Well, a near-death experience, obviously you do re-enter the body. <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't be near death. But um, the black void, well, you can think of it as um, a temporary blanking of the physical memory. But it doesn't mean a, a complete blanking out of consciousness. But all near-death experiencers invariably uh, speak um, about the tunnel and the being of light and the question that is posed to them, do you want to re-enter the body or move on? You write about the spiritual crisis of modern man in search of a soul. Yes, yes, I do. <clears throat> what do you mean by that? That is, of course, the title of Carl Jung's book. <clears throat> And a, a similar book of equal profundity is by Paul Brunton, The Spiritual Crisis of Man, actually. Um, Carl Jung was modern man in search of a soul. Yeah. What I mean by that is, is this, that we are sincerely indebted to science for all it has given us. Um, medical science, our communication, our physical needs, the ability to travel, to talk as we are. But as a result of that excessive emphasis on mechanism and technology, it has created an inner vacuum in the human being who is in search of his own soul. He's asking himself, I've got all of this. I've got a big house. I've got everything I want. Why am I so unhappy? So, the spiritual crisis is a crisis of meaning. And Carl Jung put it very beautifully, depression is a homesickness 
of the soul. It is when we're homesick, we want to go home. Where's a, where does the soul want to go? It wants to go home to its true inner spiritual location, spiritual being. And this excessive emphasis on the physical as it's really a legacy of the 19th century when there was an explosion in material development which then morphed into the materialistic attitude and having created machines then we are a machine you know that's the message being put across so machines never get depressed and go to psychiatrists we do <laughs> Why do you think modern science still clings to the idea that physical matter, like our brain, produces yeah. consciousness? It's incredible how utterly ingrained it is. Let me start in the 17th century. William Harvey was the English surgeon. It took him 20 years to convince the doctors in Europe that the heart pumps blood, that the blood is circulated by the pumping action of the heart. The prevailing idea then was that the heart is a convector heater, as um, put forward by Gallen and Aristotle. So it was a convector heater. So the, the brain cooled the, the, the blood and then you flow down to the feet. If it took 20 years for the, for the doctors to be convinced, when everyone in Venice, for example, could hold a child to their ears and hear the beating heart, it was so ingrained. Now, if the heartbeat took so long to convince the doctors, how much longer is it going to take to convince scientists that consciousness is not generated by the brain, even though the greatest of scientists have said words to the contrary? Now, it's entrenched for many reasons, and ideas tend to take root. In the 19th century, Karl Vogt, um, one of his sayings was, the brain secretes thought like the liver secretes bile, and the kidneys secrete urine, while leaving aside the, the vulgar end of the expression. Even a little bit of thought would indicate that the liver doesn't secrete bile on its own. There's something that stands behind the liver. There is the gallbladder. There is the hormones. So the brain doesn't secrete thought. William James in the 19th century put it so beautifully that the brain is a, exerts a permissive function, a transmissive function, not a production function. But ideas are heavily ingrained Jeff, and um, when you say why, it's the power of prejudice. Lord Kelvin he could not be convinced that um, heavier-than-air flight uh, was possible, even though uh, Orville and Wilbur, the Wright brothers, were flying the aeroplane. When an idea takes root, it's extremely difficult to shift it. But now the good news is increasing numbers of scientists are seeing that the old materialistic paradigm just doesn't stack up. Proof of Heaven by Eben Alexander, the great uh, neurosurgeon who had that incredible experience. But when there is enlightenment on one side of the scientific camp, there is always a kickback on the, from the old guard. And they're desperately trying to prove the brain generates consciousness. And the Templeton Foundation have put up a $20 million prize uh, for a couple of experiments to show this. Are there any tips within your books that can help us improve our lives? Well, some of the quotations from the great sages would be um, a very good starting point really to understand, not conceptualize, not in thought, but really to understand that your inner being, the soul, so to speak, the soul of each person, the soul of man, is a thing that is, whose growth and splendor has absolutely no limits. 
And the only limits we put on are the limits we put on ourselves. The other tip is always to realize that you are an inner being and you are not your body, you express through your body. So constantly to remind yourself that the body is your temple and you are the inhabitant in it. As we can see behind you, it is a four-volume set of books called Unfolding Consciousness. Do we find these books on your website or Amazon? You can find it on the website. You can find it on the publisher's website as well, Shepherd Walwyn. And uh, yes, you will see it on, on Amazon, yes. After watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask questions. Are you open to that? I'd be absolutely delighted. What's the um, what's the best way to reach you? Well, my email or through the publisher or through you've been in touch with Anne Kelly, who uh, uh, very kindly uh, set up this podcast. So um, uh, through my um, PA assistant. Are you working on anything else at the moment that you want us to know about? I'm always working, Jeff. I regard life. You've been given a rough diamond. One has to always polish it. So we talked about the latent powers. One is always polishing what you've been given. So what I'm really working on now is lots of people, of course, have written about karma, but to try and get the scientific community to understand what karma means in terms of what they're doing, the way they're dealing with animals, the way they are experimenting with genetic manipulation and all of that. It's to try and introduce a higher ethic. So I'm all for science, of course, but we need to raise science to a higher metaphysic, to a higher standpoint. The other thing I'm working on is really a lecture I'm giving on this whole question of transhumanism as against transcendence. Transhumanism, the latest movement in science to extend your life forever with genetic techniques and chips in your brain and all the rest of it, which is tied up with cryonics, freezing the body or bits of the body. And to point out you know just think about what you're doing you're not you're not going to be unfrozen and reunited with your body it's just a hideous intellectual movement transcendence is the realization of dying in order to live the oak tree sheds its leaves in order that the tree may produce new fruit uh, new new leaves the leaves are dying. Kahil Gibran in The Prophet put it beautifully. Life goes in search of life in bodies that seek the grave. So to show that this insane movement to prolong physical life is not going to get anywhere, that the physical form is the material principle which is mortal. And the mortal principle will decay. But that which inhabits the mortal is the immortal. And the immortal will attract new bodies. Eddie, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Yes, um, there is a way of approaching and contacting the impersonal, nameless higher power. But it can never be done through intellect. Intellect will only get you so far. You have to bring in the mind and the heart and action. So bring all these three things together. And be yourself. Because each person has been given a unique gift. Grow that gift. Don't be jealous of someone else. Dr. Billy Moria, thank you for that message and thank you for being my guest today.
Thank you, Jeff. It's been an honor. And I look forward to being in touch very soon. Likewise. All the very best. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.